0: Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I'm here with a very exciting episode and guest in John Strohmeyer. So I don't know how I didn't find John earlier, but I heard him on another uh, friend's podcast, Molly McGrath's, and I loved what he had to say. Discovered he had his own podcast, and it's about a subject that I think more people have to pay attention to, which is customer service in law firms. So John runs his own firm out of Houston, but to give a little teaser in his background, he did used to work at the Four Seasons for, I believe, four years for people who don't know, they've, you know, got some decent customer service over there. <laughs> so it's been really, really fascinating to dive into his world. And I'm super excited to have him on the podcast. So, John, thank you so much for taking the time to show here.
1: Of course, John. Yeah, it's great to be
0: here. I'm surprised we didn't run across each other earlier as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. So I kind of teased the background a little bit and I think we might need to go into that later, but I wanted to kind of start off with a question. And the question that I had was, you know, it kind of seems to me that everyone pays a face value taking advantage of customer service. I feel like customer focus is something that you'll see on almost every law firm website. But as you and I both know, that doesn't seem to be the case. So why don't you think people are able to put good customer service policy in place if they know how important it is? That's
1: such a good question. I'm trying to organize all my thoughts. We're going to start with Everybody knows it when they see it, but they can't describe what's happening. And this is the big thing to think about. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lawyer or some sort of related professional. You have been to places that do service well, whether it's a high-end restaurant, Four Seasons like I worked at, or even Disney. You've gone and you've experienced it. So you kind of, you know what it feels like but you don't know how to get there. It's almost like you're the critic of the restaurant. You don't care how they actually made the food. You're just tasting the results. So we're now asking you as the client service provider, as the lawyer, okay, you're in charge. Go deliver client service. Well, you've never been trained in it. You don't know what that actually means. And when I go back and I think about, all right, when I was at the Four Seasons, I was night manager there for three years. That meant I showed up at 11 o'clock at night, I left at 8 or 9 in the morning, and everything was on my plate. What did service mean there? Well, it meant taking care of people, doing what needed to be done to uphold our standards, and making sure nobody, you know, if, if there was a problem, we resolved it. It's really simple to say all of that. But when we come back and try and implement that in a law firm, what does that even mean and where are we focusing and so what this leads to is saying empty things like we're client focused okay oh, i shared something on twitter earlier this week it was like the 10 things you should never put in your pitch deck or your website and i'll make sure to get you a link to that but everybody's client focused just saying it you know it's like oh well we breathe air and we uh, you know we convert exactly uh, <laughs> we convert glucose into energy well <laughs> that's wonderful. But how are you doing it and how is it actually helping your clients? And I'll, you know, one last little screed before <laughs> before I let you talk, John. What it isn't is handing over a bunch of useless stuff to your clients. You know, it, the four seasons isn't the four seasons because of high thread count sheets or because there's marble floors or, you know, fuck any of the other physical stuff at the four seasons. It's all about how they're taking care of you. And that's important in the context of a hotel, but a law firm is not a hotel. And we've got to keep that in mind. People are going to hotels and Disney and high-end restaurants for very different reasons than they're coming to law firms. And so if we start pulling out, oh, well, you know, they gave me a this or they gave me a that, you know, shock and awe and surprises, you're gonna waste your time and effort
0: going down the wrong paths, and you're not gonna improve service. Right. You know, it's actually kind of interesting. I didn't realize this until you said it just now, but it's kind of one of these naive expertise kind of fields. Like another thing that that we see all the time more on the marketing side is people who are like, oh yeah, like I'm really an expert on branding. It's like, okay, cool. I think you could probably pick a good logo out of a lineup, but those same people couldn't tell you anything about kerning or color palettes or any of that stuff. And honestly, I don't know anything about (laughs) branding. So I'll, I'll stop right there. But basically, it's one of those things too, because it's you can you can think you have the uh, the understanding of it, but much like the food critic, that doesn't mean that you could you know make yourself a souffle unless you were taught before. So it's almost like they have this kind of underlying technique that people can see the results of, but really don't have any idea from from the inside. And then to your point, it can probably get pretty expensive to do these shock and awe packages, or maybe even worse. Think yourself, oh yeah, cool. I got a. I give people pens in a San Pellegrino. Like, you know, this is, I'm five stars, baby. Let's go. I know. and that, And that's the thing. It's, you can do that, but
1: think about this. What's the gifting policy at Disney? I mean, it's basically nothing. They don't give you much of anything that isn't cheap or easy to produce. You're paying for everything. And the people are happy to do it. Like, Disney charges a lot of money. For very good reason. They provide excellent experience. Like it's, And that's the thing. People are going to Disney and Four Seasons and restaurants and day spas, things like that, for some combination of entertainment, pampering, and fun. And that is perfectly fine. Nobody's going to confuse those entertainment, pampering, and fun experiences with why they're coming to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean we should be gruff or mean. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't have a good experience. But it does mean, like, no, how are you helping clients by having the San Pellegrino and, you know, the Mont Blanc just for the signing or the even the high end, you know, fancy bond paper for documents? I mean, once I went on my own and opened my firm, one of the first things I stopped doing was using fancy bond paper to sign documents. Why? Nobody cares. It doesn't make the will any more or less valid. There's an argument that, well, we know this is the original, okay, we can also just make sure that we know this one's the original in a way that's a little easier than that, but it doesn't mean that we have to go around and really spend a bunch of time and effort
0: on things that don't help the client move the needle. Okay, gotcha. And one thing I want to really drill down on there is that, you know, it seems like the orientation on whether something that you're doing is effective or not is is moving the needle for the client, Right. And to your point, it's obviously going to be different in a law firm than in, you know, something like Disneyland. But I guess for somebody who's coming into this completely blind, or maybe they have something that they've been doing not super intentionally, how do you go about taking that position and what the customer experience is like? And like, you know, is there any sort of starting point for people to really kind of start building these blocks that are going to actually make a difference in their practice?
1: Yeah. I mean, the first thing we have to do is define what that needle is that we're moving and you've got to figure out well the client is coming to you as the lawyer to get to some mountaintop what are you going to do to guide them and so we want to think about that in the terms of how are we helping them nominally and a lot of you know a lot of lawyers reduce what we do to document production and that's not really it you know in the context of a personal injury attorney sure they want some money as compensation for their injuries, but really they're trying to get their clients back to being as whole as possible, you know, before the injury. And when you take it in that light, it does open up these new possibilities of, well, how are you actually taking care of the clients? Does it make sense for you to send gifts to the client? While I generally say no, I remember interacting with a lawyer I think it was on a Facebook group a couple months ago. Her clients are personal injury clients. She gets them generally before they've gone through surgery. So she has a care package she sends after they've had surgery. That, I think, is brilliant. Why? She's focused on where her clients are. Yes, she's spending money on clients, but it's not, you know, she's sending like, you know, soup and flowers and magazines. It's not this overwhelming Display. It's not, you know, the customized branded merch. It's not, you know, the $700 steak knives. It's something that helps clients right then to recognize look, we're here to help you recover. This is a small thing. We've focused on you. And it doesn't mean that we're doing, you know, San Pellegrino in the office plus any other you know, drink type that you
0: may have thought of once. So it kind of seems like thoughtfulness is sort of like the leverage here, right? So it's like you don't need to spend a lot or do a tremendous amount if it really fits in on the customer journey. Exactly. It, so much of service is simple things. It's
1: rarely some over-the-top spend. It's all about – another way to think about it is it's the adjectives on how you're delivering. So, you know, it's fast or it's easy. They've remembered what we've done, painless, pain, <laughs> pain-free pain The more you can make it easy for your clients, that's what we're thinking about. So just in the context of we're looking at moving the needle for some client, does it make sense to have San Pellegrino in the office? Clients don't really care. You know, my clients, many of them have tens of millions of dollars. They've been to my offices. They are not super fancy, but they are clean and modern. We don't have a custom stocked fridge. With, you know, finest bottled waters of the world, clients aren't looking for that. They're, they're usually there for half an hour or so, and then they're gone. And it's, they're fine with that. When I start seeing more of a difference on that, or if anybody even mentions it, we'll look into it. But it's really looking, where are my
0: clients and what do they care about? So we've talked about moving the needle. I want to ask you a super, super tactical question. Do you guys have any sort of specific metrics that you recommend for your firm as an example or for something for somebody going through this process to start really measuring whether these things work? And I've heard of stuff getting thrown out there like net promoter score. I'm sure you have an opinion on that that I'd love to hear about. But um, how do we kind of determine the success or failure of these sort of initiatives?
1: so this is something where i don't track net promoter score i do track google reviews but a lot of it is you know it's going back and it's the thing you've heard time and time again if you do the basics if you just focus on the process you're going to get the results you're looking for so coming back to what we did at the four seasons what were we tracking sure we tracked reviews and comment cards and what did people say but we were more focused on our own internal process. We had standards for how you answer the phone, how you interact with guests. Thinking back to when I checked in a guest, there were 21 or 23 things I had to do every time somebody checked into the hotel. Now, most of these things get kind of blended together. When you're talking about the hotel, I'm supposed to tell them where everywhere they can get something to eat right now in the hotel because we're thinking through – all right, the person is coming into the hotel. They've just been traveling from somewhere. That's why they're staying in a hotel. They're probably hungry. And it made it a seamless process of, if you're hitting all of these things every time, they're designed in such a way that we're doing our job. So it became more of a, are we responding in a way that does our job? And does everybody know what the standard behavior is? So thinking about phone calls at the hotel, Answering phone calls within three rings. Why? Just shows you're paying attention. Hold times, never more than 15 seconds. Why? People don't like being on hold. So And so if you're going to have to put somebody on hold, it's a, let me quickly finish this thing or tell them, can I call you back? And then you call them back. So much of it is those simple things. If you do it right, it wasn't this over the top make sure your standard is gold plated pens. It's make sure you call the person back when you said you were going to call them
0: back. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're uh, potentially uncovering a pretty juicy vein of conversation here because it seems like in order to have a good client service, and, and um, I want to get to this in a little bit too, about the definition of customer service versus experience. We were talking about a little bit on the pre-recording. But, um, you know, it seems like you have to have good process in place, right? So, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to do this if you're not a company that has good SOPs. Absolutely. And the more you do that, the more you can systematize
1: it. It just makes it easier not only to have your people now know what they're doing, but bring in new people. Later today, we've got a new law student starting, and her job today is just literally follow my operations guy around. She's not responsible for producing anything. She just needs to see this is how things get done. So she'll see a few signings. She'll probably watch Brad work in Typeform and Zapier and Basecamp for a while just to see this is how everything gets done. And that's the point. Like, see where things are. And then starting next week, we'll start getting her in on some of the training projects. Like here are the things that the new associate thought were actually very useful when she was an intern to get her up to speed. So setting out even the training so that it's not just a, well, look, we're going to dump a
0: bunch of work on you and you'll pick it up that way. Yeah, absolutely. And you said something really exciting. And this is another question I had. You said you have an operations guy. And just for some context on, on how, uh, what kind of uh, stage the firm's at right now, uh, how many employees do you guys have total? We are seven total employees, including me. Okay, awesome. And at what point, like, I guess um, for somebody who might be kind of like a little bit earlier in the path, like, at what stage does one hire an operations guy?
1: I probably waited longer than I should have. I think the, probably the first and best hire was getting Smith AI to answer phone calls for me. So it wasn't a true hire, but that was one of the best outsourcings just because they answered phone calls. And so I didn't have to. Right. From there, this wasn't necessarily a wrong answer. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that, but what I look for now, my first real hire was my paralegal, but having the person, the operations guy, who's there to almost help me find the lowest level tasks instead of having the paralegal who's taking the tasks that are just below my level. Mm. And that's what I think about is like, you're always looking to pick up the easiest wins. Let's not, swing for the fences. I'd rather have singles and doubles all day, do the the 1% improvement. Because if we rack those up, we're going to get better a lot faster. And then it makes the bigger developments so much easier because we've got all these other little things in place.
0: Yeah. And like those, you know, 10 or 20% improvements on the day-to-day can end up having so much more investment into stuff that might end up being a little bit more productive for you as the owner of the firm or, you know, someone else coming in online. But it's really interesting because um, it's kind of funny timing as well. Uh, we're in the middle of a big process overhaul for a couple departments here at Casefield right now. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, there's there's kind of these levels of people that we've kind of seen, at least just in, in our experience in hiring over the years too. It's like there's people who get process to the point of being able to follow it. Again, the lowest bar is people who can't follow a darn process and they don't really last too long here. The second time is people who can understand the process and, and follow it, and then the last part would be people who understand process to the point of being able to write process and edit process and see, you know, come kind of take like a big, you know big picture look at the organization. And this is kind of one of the dilemmas that I face personally is that I've kind of classically been that person. And this is something that I've heard is like a pretty you know common challenge with organizations of all types and all sizes. But it's awesome that you have somebody who's been able to do it because like, you know, as, as that being an early hire, which it sounds like it was, you know, you're able to really get those returns like pretty quickly, right? And like, what kind of stuff does that free up for, for you to do on the day to day? It's really helpful because there are so many things that I could do and I could find
1: myself going down the rabbit hole on things that, oh, wouldn't this be fun? Or let me go tinker in Zapier and see if I can't make this work when really my best use isn't there. Mm. So just having the ability to say we have all of our processes stored in Basecamp, in the HQ matter there. We've set up an email address so that we can, you know, if anything comes up and I can just like shoot it over into that matter through Zapier and it's like, here, let's remember how to do it this way. It also creates a task just so we're not forgetting some of those little bits of knowledge that show up in an email or something like that. But then you're right that having people who can write the process, one of the guys on my team, my internal bookkeeper, Bill, just he follows those instructions sometimes more than I'd like because I look at things. So he'll be working in this Excel spreadsheet that I developed for myself just to make sure that Iolta is always balanced. Mm -hmm. And so every week he's going in there reconciling it. And when I first handed it over, I thought I had my directions down. Like there was two or three pages. It was like 40 steps Download this report, download that report. And it took a while to get Bill up to speed on it because I'd written it in my language. And what I've learned is Bill is so good at just kind of following the instructions exactly as they are written. Sometimes to my supreme frustration when I'm like, Bill, I know it said cell 56. It was cell 57. Could you have not just looked one cell (laughs) over? But that's also the point of he's, you know, he's really good at picking that out because he's going to follow it and he's going to do it and say, I don't understand. And so we'll run out all of the edge cases on this. And I also know if I'm going to go in there and fiddle with the Excel file, you know, either tell him I've done things and he needs to update the instructions or constrain whatever I'm doing so that it doesn't upset any of the cell values that he's looking for.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's actually, you, know, you, you bring up a really good point too, because this is something um, I've also been thinking of, like about a lot. But like one of the super key things is that if you have a bill and they have the confidence and you set the culture in such a way that they can't ask the questions, then you almost have a self-correcting procedure. Some of the worst situations I can think about in the last couple of years for stuff that we've set up as far as SOPs have been from people who don't do that, and then you you realize when <laughs> the smoke starts coming up over the horizon, you're like, "Oh my god, how? Long what are we gonna do? Been? Yeah, <laughs> how long has this been in uh, in the mix? But yeah, no, it's it's also good too because you know to kind of see the the real side of SOPs too. You know, and this is just something not to go on too much of a, a grandstand, but like, you know, I, I think a lot of times people pitch the, the one-on-one level dream of a lot of these things, be it marketing, be it operations, be it like whatever. And then they don't realize that, you know, to really have something that's kind of a sustainable advantage of this sometimes takes a little bit more than setting it up. <laughs> but <laughs> when you have the point that like, it's actually something that's been built, then that's really how things become kind of sustainable as a, as a competitive advantage, whatever that happens to be. But yeah, I kind of want to transition a little bit too and, and kind of like the benefits of customer service too. And just, you know, having looked at your podcast, I know there's a lot of stuff that you talk about in terms of the crossovers and using service as marketing. So can you kind of bring us in on, on how you've seen that work in either your firm or people that you know that have been working with you?
1: It makes it so much easier because this is what we do, you know, not looking at it right now, but you know, the reviews that we get, it all comes back to, well, listening to Other people talk about, well, what works for Google reviews? The fact that the service is all about how we're doing this, how we're delivering it, how do we make it easy? Well, we know we need to get reviews. We know that Google rewards kind of wordier, longer reviews. So let's make it easy for everybody. We use Text Expander a lot. Just having that Text Expander with the link built in, with here are the questions we want you to answer so people don't just hit five stars and bounce or say something like everything was really good. If we can get them to think about one or two of those questions, it's making it easy for them when it's still kind of an awkward position to, you know, like people don't like necessarily leaving reviews for high-end services. It would be great if everybody just naturally did it and they the only thing they were thinking about is how can I leave a review as soon as possible? The reality is they're busy. They've got other things to do. So when it's time to leave the review, we're here to make it as easy as possible for them. And that's what it comes down to is thinking through, you know, whether it's leaving a review or sending the email to the client. Like, how are you going to make them it easy for this process for them? What questions are they going to have? How can you just kind of grease the skids so you get what you need done as fast as possible?
0: Yeah. I, and also, this is something that uh, <laughs> I've always had a really, really hard time with both myself and getting our employees to actually go ahead and ask for reviews too, because it is kind of an awkward thing, right? You know, we're talking about high-end trust here. You know, that's going to be a pretty penny in most instances. And then yeah. after they've you know, written you a check, I'll go, yeah, um, could you do me a solid, brother? It's <laughs> right. it's Kind of a hard ask to make, but... Getting super tactical, how do you think about that? And like, what point in the process do you think have, have you guys gotten the best results from, from introducing it? So far, we've been doing it at the end of the process.
1: Mm. Just you know, kind of, let's get all the way to the end. Sometimes we'll ask early on if it makes sense. And the other thing that we do is if we got people who call us, you know, the marketing we do generates a lot of leads, many of which are people who, are not marketing qualified. So these are people who think, you know, they say, oh, John's talking about tax or estate planning. Let me call him with my my question about, I want to challenge this will. So I send out, I mean, golly, I think like 20% of our leads we end up referring out to litigators just because we're, you know, like we're generating these leads. We're still doing – we're doing a handoff to people. We're making you know, making sure they know, look, you called the wrong place. We're not just going to say, you know, go somewhere else. It's here. You know, we're going to get some details about your particular case, and we're going to send it to the one of the six litigators we know just because they're different. They've got different focuses. You know, some are better with kind of corporate structures intertwined with that. Some are just better pure fiduciaries. Some need some guardianship involved. There are a lot of things to think about. And so we want to say, well, look, even though we're not the right people, we're going to get you to the right people so that you get taken care of, because that's ultimately the goal. You want to get taken care of. And that's part of my marketing is making sure I'm sending those referrals out. I have zero interest in taking on probate litigation as a practice area. But if I send out all of these referrals to the people who are sending work back to me, like that helps me.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to point out a couple of things for the listeners too, that I think are super, super important. And, um, you know, if you guys have been listening to the, the talk that we've been having about process, one of the major reasons that I, I'm com- constantly railing against running a general practice and niching down as much as is realistic possible is because it allows the process to be a little bit more simple at the end of the day. And the second thing, and I think this is the first time I've ever heard somebody talk about this on the podcast I feel like the way that most attorneys do referrals is they can be doing so much more because the first thing is that when somebody thinks about your law firm, they're like, well, I was taken care of regardless of the fact that I didn't have something that they could you know, invoice me for. That's, that's one thing. And the second thing is to the referral partner, you're giving them so much more detail about the incoming lead. It's not just, oh, so-and-so has a litigation need here you go um, right. but you know you're giving them the the dossier so to speak and like you know i'm sure you guys are doing some thoughtful introductions from that point forward but you know how much more attractive does that make you as a referral partner exactly and if anything
1: i kind of treat the money i don't spend on other advertising and marketing sources it's really just reinvested here of if i take care of the people around me it's going to work for me and yeah, you know, the, like, we had somebody call up, they had filed a probate thing here in Texas by themselves. Now they needed to change. I looked at it and just said, with everything going on, this may end up in some litigation based on what they told us. That mere chance, it's better to get them in the hands of a litigator who can help get them what like their first thought, as well as be able to see down the road and see, look, if there is litigation coming. They're going to be much better suited. I'm not going to have to bring in this litigator later. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And then, you know, it just makes it easier for you to grow the firm and, and that kind of thing too, because you're, you're just focusing on what's good for you, right? Exactly. And I mean, just the niching down also makes it so much easier.
1: I mean, here I am, I'm almost three and a half years in on this firm. I haven't even niched down since I opened when I was taking, not only doing the same stuff, but I've taken certain pages off the website. Just to stop taking that work and focus more on other things, you know, not even other things, the things that are working best for me. And it's great. It, you know, if it's not something that's within what we do, it's very easy to say, it's like even to a current client, I'm not the guy to do this. We've got somebody else. So it's not even a, I'm not making money off of this. It's you're going to get a much better result by going to somebody
0: else. Yeah, and like, you know, big picture frame. That's the best interest of the, the client at the end of the day, right? And like, you know, I'm sure that comes across in everything that you're saying. I also exactly. say this too, like, you know, for people that are worried about this, I and this might be kind of a pseudo, this is all <laughs> this is one of those like uh intersection of uh psychology and woo woo stuff. It's like I really believe that the more you say no to like no, this is not a fit to people, the more conviction you have when you tell somebody, yeah, I think this is a good call for you. Absolutely. Like,
1: oh, we see this all the time. Uh, Somebody's asking about certain tax planning things. They were asking about it in a way that sometimes we say no to it, but also, you know, I could see where they were going. It makes it much easier for me to know this
0: is a good fit versus this is a bad fit. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then the other thing, too, just like, you know, it's going to be so much better from a marketing perspective, too, you know, especially, you know, and this is the thing, John, we've covered like so many different things. I just want people to understand how all this stuff fits together. Going back to the review strategy, if it's 75 reviews that are five-star about a specific issue versus 75 reviews and one's family and one's a car accident case and one's a simple will, the person that really is that 10 out of 10 fit for the client is going to be so much, you know, you're going to have so much, you're never going to get price shop for that. If you're the only guy who does this for this type of person, then it's, you know, the, the amount of power that you have in the consultation is tremendous. And that ultimately conversion rate is is really the leverage that you're going to get on your spend at the end of the day.
1: Right. It's The way I think about it is two different ways of putting it, but I'll start with this. Like, Why should anybody pick up the phone and call you? You want to make sure that people know exactly when to call you and when not to call you. Sure, mistakes will happen, but it also makes it easy for your referral sources if they know exactly why they call you. My referral sources know, don't call me with any litigation. Thank you very much for thinking of me. I don't know how to do it, and I don't want to learn how to do it. And the other thing is something that I've been saying for a while, and it's you don't have job security until people pick up the phone and call you to pay you money to do something. And, you know, it kind of it made some sense, but it really is you need people to call you and know why they're calling you. That's what we want to get to is make it as easy as possible for them to know when and how to pick up the phone to make
0: sure that you get some money. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I guess we're getting towards the end of the hour. I wanted to kind of leave with super tactical stuff. As far as people who are really starting to consider it, are there any first steps that you could think that somebody could take to get the foundation in place to start really thinking about their customer journey and the customer service experience of working with their firm?
1: Yes. And it's something I've mentioned before, but it's worth going back to. You've got to start by defining that needle that you're moving. In the context of PI, it's not just get money for the client, because well, you, you know, you're a lawyer, and so think about how is it that you're helping the client recover. You know, as an estate planner, my job is not to produce a pile of documents. You know, the client don't isn't going to care if I give them a will or trust or a singing bush that just tells people what to do when they're dead. They want to make sure at the end of the day their plan gets carried out, and. Come up with what that looks like and know, look, we help these sorts of people affect these sorts of plans. It's not just we produce documents because if all you do is produce documents, you're competing with LegalZoom and the free forms on the internet. And that's, you're going to run into a lot of bigger problems keeping your firm alive. And then once you've got what that needle is, it makes it so much easier. Everything just kind of flows downstream from there because you can start figuring out, all right, well, if we're going to do this, how do we make it better and easier, not only for our clients, but for you, the owner, as well as your staff? How do we make it easier for them? You've got finite resources. You're going to have to make some choices. And by knowing what your needle is and what you're looking for, it'll help you figure out what are the best strategies and tactics to build out your firm. You can't start picking appropriate strategies and tactics until you know what you're
0: trying to do. Yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, I, I think this has been a huge, I mean, honestly, got it like really big eye opening conversation for me. I'm um, saying that super genuinely, John, because like I oh, thought like, um, you know, at, at some level, I might have thought that there was some kind of like, you know, step one, two, three, four, five for this stuff. But it sounds like, you know, it really is kind of one of those situations where. You have to be deliberate about when you're setting your goal. But the way that you get there really is going to be unique for every service and every type of person. So, you know, there's not a prescriptive path for that, so to speak. No. And,
1: you know, and it's the good news and the bad news. Everybody's going to have to figure out what it looks like for them. But there is so much space. You know, yes, LegalZoom is coming to eat all of the easy legal work. You know, Jeff Bezos is investing in, what is it, Pilot, the automated accounting firm. The low-level work is going away, but look around you. Four Seasons is still out there. People are still willing to pay for for high-end quality services. Even with non-accountant ownership of CPA firms, you still have plenty of folks who are making a living out there. I mean, more than just making a living, the the folks who run their own firms, who have their medium-sized CPA firms – this is not doom and gloom. It's, you've got to just figure out how it works for you and your
0: people. Obviously my, my dog has a lot of thoughts on this too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then, um, you know, I think this is, this is a great place to, uh, to, to kind of set people off for the next step. And then, you know, I've been a huge fan of your podcast recently, John, but for everyone else, what's the best way to get in touch?
1: Best things to do one episode 65. It's just going to be titled update it's going to really consolidate a lot of what I've figured out going through the podcast over the last year. So if any of this resonates with you, start with that episode 65. Beyond that, if you want to get in touch, john at Or Also reach out. I'm john the lawyer on Twitter. Oh,
0: that's a fantastic handle. <laughs> oh, I got in in 2009. I was- <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right. So John, once again, thank you so much And um, you know, everyone, I'd super recommend checking out the podcast. It's fantastic. Also, 25-minute chugs generally, which is great for an easy uh, morning walk or anything you happen to do. But um, for everybody else, I will see you guys next week at Tuesday, 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode